God is saying, it's not just about this thing we call sin. It is about the fundamental embodied right to the history of the end of the earth, experience of shame that I'm going to take on in my very embodied experience of being beaten, naked, put on a cross. There will be no shame that I don't know. And so when I come for you, Peter, in six weeks on the beach, you need to know I know what this is like, and I'm not afraid of it. Well, Happy New Year, everyone. This is Family Life Blended, and I'm Ron Deal. This donor-supported podcast helps blended families and those who love them pursue the relationships that matter most. I'm so glad you've joined us in this journey. Welcome to episode number 72, Ridding Your Soul of Shame. Hey, as we start this new year, if you have a topic or a question you'd like for us to address on a future podcast, we would really love to hear from you. There's two ways you can send that to us. You can email us at blendedquestions at familylife.com, or you can call and leave us a voice message that we might use in a future episode when we provide an answer to your question. You can call 407-826-2606 to leave that voice message. And if you need those numbers or that email address again, just look in the show notes. It is, of course, the new year. And usually when we think about New Year's resolutions and we learn about learning a new skill, building a good habit, or losing a few pounds. But what if you could lose the shame that binds you? You know, that insidious feeling that you're not enough, you're not really wanted, you're really not that valuable. I got to tell you, because I've wrestled with shame throughout my life, I think I can say that you probably wrestle with shame too, that it affects your life maybe more than you realize. Nan and I both have been greatly impacted by the work of my guest today, Dr. Kurt Thompson, and I believe you will too. Kurt Thompson, MD, is a psychiatrist. He specializes in interpersonal neurobiology. In my opinion, his two books on shame and spirituality are a must-read for both individuals and for church leaders. Kurt and his wife, Phyllis, live outside Washington, D.C. and have two children. Kurt and I were speaking at a Christian counselors conference when we met up in a busy hotel and recorded this conversation. For years, I've tried to help couples in stepfamilies wrestle with shame. It does seem to be a significant barrier for many people. So this conversation is important. I really hope you'll stay with us. Here's my conversation with Dr. Kurt Thompson. Kurt, thanks for being with me. It's a pleasure. I need to uh, share a story with you. Hmm. A number of years ago, some of my listeners may have heard me tell this story before, but it so encapsulates shame in my mind Hmm. that I just want to share it with you and then have you react to it. And let's unpack what this woman was struggling with. Hmm. A number of years ago, I was speaking in a church on a Sunday morning, and The worship team was there, and it was one of those churches where they had multiple services. So 
uh, I was getting to preach the same sermon four times in a <laughs> row. <laughs> and, Lucky you. Lucky me. And by the fourth time, I was thinking, have I already said this part? <laughs> Did I already? Oh, my goodness. When I, no, I don't think I said it. Okay, here we oh, go. Oh, <laughs> gosh. Yes. And the yeah. worship team, of course, was leading four times. So I got to know them in between the first service and, and after the second service. Yes. And then at one of those occasions between services, I was chatting with a couple people on the worship team, and I was just thanking them for leading me into a place of worship. It was really touching and moving, and I just felt the presence of God. And I had been speaking on grace and sort of related to step families of the Bible and how many of us today can really relate to those kinds of experiences. Mm. And so all of a sudden, one of the women on the worship team, who's heard my sermon now twice, mm. says to me, oh, yeah, well, we're one of those blended families. I said, oh, great. Well, and I kind of winked and said, you know, so you can relate to this whole grace thing with your family, right? And she goes, uh, no, not really. And I stopped and I thought, okay, help me with that. Um, I need to hear more. What's behind that? I'm a therapist. I know to chase the pain, right? <laughs> That's what we do. Hmm. And she said, well, you know, I don't know. It's just, you know, I didn't want a divorce. My first husband left me, kind of left us in a lurch. It was really hard. And I have a great husband now. You know, we're, we're doing well. We've had some struggles, but we're really doing well as a family. But I just don't feel the smile of God on our marriage. And I said, okay, tell me a little more. And you know, as the story went on, she basically unpacked a story I've heard a million times from many, many people, but especially from a lot of blended family couples. Whether it's other people's judgment and shame put on them for whatever life has thrown at them and, and whatever decisions they may have made. Sometimes they make those sinful decisions. Sometimes somebody else made a sinful decision. Sometimes people didn't make any decision. It's just sort of where they find themselves. But they still sort of feel second class. They still feel like, wow, you know, my life shouldn't have gone this way. And because it did, here I'm struggling. And I was so struck by here's this woman who brought me into the throne room of God where we worshiped and celebrated God's grace and mercy and his goodness to us. And yet she could not absorb that very same message of grace for herself. Now, I've heard this story a million times, but that one really stuck with me. Like, here's this woman who's a part of the worship team, and this message is not for her. At least that's the way it feels. Hmm. Would you help me and our listeners understand what does shame do to us? Hmm. Why does it unravel our ability to rest in God's goodness and grace and mercy? What's going on in this story that we all need to learn something from. Well, you know, Ron, I'm uh, just sitting, holding the story itself, and it's just really painful. Mm -hmm. And I'm not at all close to or connected to the story. And at the same time, this tells us something about what shame does. That, mm. you know, you're the person who had the encounter with the woman I don't know anything about this one. I'm not connected to this story. You're telling me this story, and it's resonant with me about mm -hmm. the parts of my own shame, unfinished business, mm -hmm. hmm. which I think tells us a little bit about the ubiquity of shame. Yeah, It's everywhere. I think it tells us a little bit about 
uh, how ancient it is. Uh, a significant part of shame's power, I think, has to do with how long it has been at work in the world and how early in our own lives it takes up neurobiological residence. Mm -hmm. And so we're really well practiced at it. It's easily accessible. Once it gets entangled with our desire to create beauty and goodness in the world, even the beauty now becomes something that I have a hard time even longing for or even imagining that I would want because I'm only going to anticipate the shame is going to accompany it. Mm. Mm. And so you have this really ancient neurophysiologic, interpersonal, cultural phenomenon that is entangled in the micro moments of our lives, not to speak of the big moments of our lives. Right, right. And, you know, it's kind of like if you were to take a cup of chocolate powder and pour it in a gallon of milk and stir it all up, it doesn't really matter how much you dilute the milk thereafter. Hmm. The chocolate's still in the milk. Hmm. It's still there. Still there. And I think that... I'm someone who uh, likes to know that if I'm going to work on a problem, that I'm going to fix a problem to its perfected end. And so the fact that shame still at times wraps itself around my ankles, mm -hmm. like in and of itself is a shaming thing to me. Like why mm -hmm. can't I like be the kind of follower of Jesus who gets it right enough such that shame never really has any more foothold? And my sense is that evil's intention is to very subtly and very silently use shame where it can and where it will to continue to entangle our histories and our stories, mm -hmm. not just to make us feel bad, not just as, not, not just as evidence of our having made certain decisions that, you know, or other people making certain decisions, but I mean, in addition, and maybe I would say primarily, it uses shame as a way to prevent us from creating beauty in the world. Mm. Hmm. That's its mission. Ultimately, if you're entangled and tied down by shame, what right. I hear you saying is you can't be free to create beauty in the world. Right. So your friend, if we were to ask her, if you couldn't be ashamed, if it weren't possible, mm. what would be the next artifact of beauty that you would want to create? Mm. What would be the next risk you would be willing to take? And of course, for some of us, those questions feel impossible to answer because shame has been so effective, it makes it virtually impossible for me to think about this. But this is the thing, right? Part of why, I mean, and, and it's the, the way that shame is effectively what I would call self-referential, like you sense it and then you feel it, it, it kind of like mm -hmm. wraps itself even more tightly around you. And the more ashamed I feel, the more ashamed I feel. And neurophysiologically, this is what happens in no small part because of the isolating effect that it carries out upon different structures in the brain. Hmm. But this notion that if we were to invite your friend to consider the future and to say, well, what if you couldn't be ashamed? What mm -hmm. would you want to do? Mm. The moment that she starts to imagine what she would want to do, her memory is going to follow her. Hmm. 
And there will be the risk of like, oh, yes, but something might go wrong and shame will be waiting for me. And so I, I find it impossible to imagine the answer to that question. What would I do if shame were here? And I'm really then just left with this. Yeah. So we say, I can't get out of this. I'm too racked by this. That is as much about how frightening it is for me to take the risk of leaving it mm-hmm. as it is about shame actually having some kind of independent power over us. Hmm. And this is why we talk about the significance of community. Yeah. Because I might not be able to imagine not being ashamed, but I'm willing to allow, if I'm willing to allow you to believe that for me for a little while, if I can borrow your brain, mm-hmm. if I can hear your voice, if I can see your gaze, and I'm going to start to pay attention to that and stop paying attention to my shame little by little by little. Sometimes it takes days, weeks, months, years, the rest of our life, we find that we can begin to exercise the very delicate and sometimes tedious work of untangling shame from the neural networks that represent my longing to do the next creative thing. really focus in on that idea. Let's come back to it because one of the things I've seen in my work with blended families in particular is when they get in community with other people, it is life-giving. It does help disentangle that shame and it does free them, I think, to begin to move on, in your words, to create beauty. And and I would just add, and the beauty of Christ. So let's definitely come back to that whole idea of community and the importance of that. Kurt, you said so much in that opening statement. Uh, Let's try to unpack a little bit of it. I think one of the things that people know about shame is that it's a feeling, (laughs) that there's something bad about who they are, Mm -hmm. something incomplete, not good enough. But I'm not sure people understand what you implied a minute ago about it being physiological, Mm -hmm. uh, that it's actually part of our neuro pathway, science, brain, dynamic, interpersonal, Mm -hmm. and that we experience it from a very, very, very young age. And Mm -hmm. so we're we're really used to feeling it. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's a lot in that. Can you help Mm -hmm. us unpack? What what do you mean by it's physical? Yeah. So one of the things that we, when we talk about emotion, uh, in our language, we often imagine that there is this phenomenon called emotion Mm -hmm. and yeah sure and we feel things they're feelings and they live somewhere in the ether but we don't necessarily imagine feelings being something that are integral to or tied up in or wrapped up in my physical experience Mm. but it wouldn't take much to imagine like to ask the question well when you're really when when you're like doubled over in laughter Mm. because like you you, a stand-up comic or somebody's really like Imagine what you feel in your body and where you feel it. Mm-hmm. Imagine that for a moment. Mm-hmm. And then now, imagine you're really sad, mm. Mm. grief-stricken even. Yeah. Now, imagine what you sense in your body. And going further, imagine if you've had some moment of humiliation, some moment of mm. deep shame that you can bring to your mind. Just think for a minute and consider about what that feels like in your body, where in your chest, in your face. Mm -hmm. You turn away. 
when we experience the thing that we call shame, that is important to know, it is always coming to us from some outside source. It doesn't first hmm. emerge from within us directly. It is something that we begin to pick up on in our environment. Children, human beings are able to experience shame as early as 15 to 18 months of age. That, that just stuns me. I mean, right. Uh, you know, we don't think of infants as being somehow vulnerable to this type of experience, but indeed right. they are. Right, because we typically tend to think of shame when we say, well, were you ashamed? We immediately yeah. connect the feeling of shame with the story. Mm-hmm. And I think about the story. I was mm-hmm. ashamed because of what they said. I was ashamed because I didn't do this well enough. But the I didn't do this well enough or something happened to me, like... Those kinds of things take second kind of step. I'm really just paying attention to this feeling that I have associated with the story. But all it would take would be for us to imagine if you've ever seen a dog demonstrate shame, Mm -hmm. a dog can do this. That's right. And a dog, we would say most smart dogs developmentally sit somewhere between the ages of about two and six, eight, maybe eight years of age of a human being. Mm. And so a dog doesn't need language. A dog doesn't need a story. A dog doesn't need a reason hmm. to demonstrate shame. All they're doing is responding typically to tone. Yeah. Tone and some kind of physical interaction that they've had with the universe. Hmm. So, for example, like if I'm the kid that grows up in a house, then this would be a very, very mild thing because most of the shame that most of, experience, of us experience is what we call the death of a thousand cuts. Hmm. Right? It comes in very small moments, multiple times in the course of our life, as it turns out then most of which are also self-inflicted. So the young boy who comes as a eight or 10-year-old to his dad with his 92% on his math test, because he doesn't always do well with math, but he's worked really hard and he's got a 92% and he brings the test to his dad with his 92 and his dad says, where's the other 8%? Mm-hmm. Not good enough. Now, if we were to um, ask the dad, what were you thinking? Mm-hmm. The dad might say, well, what do you mean? The dad loves his son. The dad is actually quite glad that he got a 92%. The father would say, I'm trying to push myself. I'm trying to encourage him. I'm trying to want him to do better. Mm-hmm. I get it. But in brain time, long before he ever comprehends the language, he's feeling it in his chest. Mm. He feels it in his face. He has the neurophysiologic response of this sense of his father turning away his face. Mm. 92 isn't good enough. And so what am I going to do? I'm the kid... Now, what we think, we, you know, the story expands and eventually the boy is working really hard to make sure that he gets the 100%. I'm going to work really hard to do this. What he's not aware of is that it is true he's trying to get the extra 8%, but what his brain is mostly trying to do is to protect against the feeling of shame. Yeah. Hmm. The brain, the part of the brain, our brainstem, our lower limbic circuitry, lower right hemisphere, that then tends to send this tsunami out, it doesn't care a thing about test scores. (laughs) It's trying to manage the neurophysiologic response that this boy is experiencing in light of it in response to his father's behavior. Now this kid's going to work really hard over the next 10 years. By the time he's 18, he's going to be valedictorian of his class. He's going to work his tail off. And it's still not going to be good enough. And it won't be good enough. And he will have developed a narrative in which he says, like, I need to work harder. I need mm-hmm. to work harder because mm-hmm. I'm not really 
that effective as a student. And at that point, he's not just feeling whatever shame from the past, but he's feeding forward the shame that will come if he doesn't perform well enough. Exactly. And we would also go further and say, this is an example of how when he says to himself now hundreds of times, I need to work harder. I'm Mm -hmm. not working hard enough. He becomes his own shame inflictor. Mm -hmm. He's inflicted Mm -hmm. this upon himself. But if Mm -hmm. you were to ask him, What's the story? Why, why do you think that you feel embarrassed? Well, I think I'm embarrassed because I'm not working hard enough. He would not have the insight to say, I think I feel embarrassed because my father actually has bad behavior mm-hmm. and has had bad behavior my entire life. That's why I felt it when I was eight. Yeah, no, wouldn't co- make that connection. We don't make that connection. And because we don't, we end up telling ourselves a narrative in the isolation of our own mind, which I'm sure your friend was telling herself Mm -hmm. at some level. There's a story that she's telling. Mm -hmm. And that story becomes self-referential. You tell it once, you feel bad, you now have to tell it stronger because one of the things we're going to do is that we're going to work harder. And one of the ways that she works hard, she brings the worship. Yeah. Okay, so I'm sitting here and I'm listening for myself and I'm listening for someone who's tuning in and they're going, yeah, that's what I feel when I go to church. I feel like I need to go to church, but somehow I don't really belong. Mm. I feel like I'm there, but I'm not good enough to be there. Yeah. I, if they really knew the real me, I'm not sure they would let me back mm. <laughs> in the building again. Mm. Mm. And that story, that narrative takes on a life of its own. And I'm also captured by this idea that of the father, in your example, turning his face away from the son. Mm-hmm. There, that's the interpersonal nature of shame. Mm-hmm. We retreat into isolation, mm-hmm. and we also fear the turning away of others mm-hmm. toward us. Mm-hmm. Certainly, this is true vertically with God mm-hmm. and with other human beings mm-hmm. in life. Mm-hmm. The culmination of that is, wow, isolation? Um, the narrative lives on. There's nothing to combat that narrative within us. And it's sort of like, yeah, we just continue to live in our shame. Is that mm. ultimately where it leads? Yes, simply mm. put. That is what we do, and which is how it is that your, your worship leader is still quite able to produce, create beauty. Mm. But in order to do that, also has to do it by sacrificing the part of her that is not invited to the table. Mm. Wow. The part of her that is that feels left out, the part of her that feels not enough, so forth and so on. Okay, so we have to go back to Genesis 2. Yeah. Because in the beginning, <laughs> mm. there was naked and unashamed. Right. It seems to me once shame came into the world, once sin came into the world... Which are two separate things, right? Okay. And you can unpack that if you want. But since that happened... We've been clothed and hiding Mm. instead of being naked and unashamed. Mm -hmm. We've been trying to protect ourselves and protect our own narrative and not be seen for what we really are, who Mm. we really are. Mm. We we don't want to be seen. We don't want to be known Mm. because that's too scary. Mm. Somebody else might realize what I know about myself Mm. and that's that I'm not good enough. And I don't want you to know that about me because then you might turn away From me, I, mm. it's so self-defeating. How do we get mm. back to the garden? Mm. How do we unpack mm. shame? Mm. Maybe, maybe we need to go back and talk about community again. But what are some of the elements involved in that? Well, you know, um, one story that jumps to my mind immediately is Jesus in, in John's Gospel in chapter four mm. with the Samaritan woman. I love that story. Yeah, it's, it's <laughs> it like yeah, 
uh, and there is a sense in which, you know, there's the there's the one the one maneuver. Well, there's several maneuvers in the dialogue, but one of the maneuvers that he brings to the table that she just doesn't see coming. Mm. Go and bring your husband. Mm. And she's like, she has no idea <laughs> where she, where this is headed. Especially like, since that came, they were talking about water and wells and buckets up until that moment in time, and then he totally makes right. a left turn. Right, exactly. There's no turn signal. We're making a right. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Go and bring your husband. Yeah. And what he's saying is, go get the part of you that you're ashamed of. Mm. The part that I know that when these words come out of my mouth, you're going to, like, tell me a story mm. that is going to try to, like, stiff arm me. Hmm. But he wants the part of her that is thirsty. All right. Yeah. And she says, oh, I'm not married. She's going to slip the noose. Yeah. <laughs> and then, of course, like, this is... Of course you're not married. Mm. And then he wades into her shame. Mm. He doesn't wait for her to go someplace else and get it cleaned up and bring it back to him all neat and tidy. He wades into it. Mm -hmm. He sees it and he comes for it. what's really difficult is that we don't have a lot of practice being in places where it is the explicit intention of the relationships in that system to come and find other people's shame. This is a part of why we are here. So when Jesus meets Peter on the beach in John 21, right, if I'm Peter, I'm like, hey, wait a minute. I thought we were supposed to have a confidential psychotherapy session like in the own privacy of your office. I didn't think I was going to have it in the waiting room. Yeah. Right? No. Jesus is going to wade right into it. Do you love me? Mm. And this is after Peter has denied him three times, after the resurrection. That's the context. Right. right. But... Also, after Peter somehow behaviorally has decided that I guess I'm not going to fish for men, I'm just going back to the boat, mm, mm. which is what he's doing. He swims to shore, and everything looks great, right? This is what you know. Jesus sets it all up. We're like with the woman. Like, mm. Let's talk about water. Let's have breakfast. Yeah. Which is why, of course, it's really helpful to have really hard conversations around good meals. Mm-hmm. And in the asking, do you love me? Of course, there is the implied statement that Peter has to decide what he, well, what is Jesus really saying? What's the statement behind the question? Is Jesus saying, I know what you've done? You suck at life. Yeah. I know what you've done and you are a horrible person right. and I'm calling you out. And... Right. I'll just make sure that everybody here doesn't have any doubt. Mm. No. Just like the woman at the will. That's not, right. that was not the purpose. No. And Peter deflects, right? You, well, you, of course you do. Of course you do. And then we read the last time, and Peter was grieved in his heart that Jesus asked him yet a third time, do you love me? Hmm. And it's easy, I think for me, easy for most to read that text and say, well, you know, come on. Like, what do you mean? Like, can't, I'm grieved. Like, I'm really... And I'm thinking, oh, my grief is not just that he has asked. 
my grief is that he has put his finger on my grief. Mm -hmm. He's opened the door and basically said, look, you say that you love me. And let's just be clear in front of everybody here, all the other disciples, you still believe that you don't. There's the part of you that knows you don't. There's the part of, like, if I'm Peter, I'm like, okay, fine. Are you happy now? Like, can we just admit? Look, I threw you under the bus six weeks ago. Is this what you're looking for? Fine, I'll just, like, I'll just go, maybe I'll just go back to the boat. And we have to remember that Jesus doesn't say to Peter, I'm just checking to make sure that you've gotten those extra eight points on your test. Jesus says, I have work for you to do. Hmm. I have sheep for you to tend. I have work for you to do. And you're still harboring shame about what happened six weeks ago. And I don't want that to get in the way of the work that I have for you to do. I want you to know, like, we're all going to know that we all know that I know that you've got this shame and we're going to, like, we're not leaving out alone. We're Hmm. coming for this. Because if we don't, you will forever still be burning energy containing, managing that shame, Mm. and that will be energy that will not be available for you and me to co-create those good works that I have waiting for you from before the foundation of the world. So here's what I hear you saying. In our shame, we live in the fear of other people recognizing what we're ashamed of and us becoming more isolated, so we tend to withdraw, and we're afraid of the face turning away from us, but what God does, what Jesus did with the woman at the well and with Peter was even though the shame was there and he put a finger on it, he says to them, I'm not turning away from you. I'm coming toward you. I'm coming to you. Mm-hmm. We're going to deal with this mm-hmm. and I'm not abandoning you. Mm-hmm. You are not unworthy. You are mm-hmm. not nothing. Of mm-hmm. no va- you, have, you are of great value, in mm-hmm. fact. Mm-hmm. And so we're not going to continue to let shame get in the way. Right. In fact, we would say, I mean, this is, I'd say like, look, this is part of what Good Friday is all about, right? Mm -hmm. The Romans didn't just crucify you, like they stripped you naked. Mm -hmm. Our Western art traditions notwithstanding, Our pictures don't portray that. And there is a sense in which with crucifixion, God is saying, it's not just about this thing we call sin. It is about the fundamental embodied right to the history of the end of the earth experience of shame that I'm going to take on in my very embodied experience of being beaten, naked, Mm -hmm. put on a cross. There will be no shame that I don't know. Mm. Wow. And so when I come for you, Peter, in six weeks on the beach, you need to know I know what this is like and I'm not afraid of it. Mm Mm-hmm. I'm not afraid of how much shame you have, which just means like, I don't care how much you do have. You can't make me leave the room. I'm not leaving the room. The challenge for us is whether or not we will stay. Yeah. When we read in Mark's gospel, his version in 10 Mark of Jesus' encounter with the rich young ruler, it's the only part of the three synoptics where we read about this story in which, and Jesus looked at him and loved him and said, there's one thing you lack. You're working your tail off, right? Even to the point where you have to ask me what you need to do to get me to want to hang out with you. All I'm wanting you to do is to unburden yourself. 
Mm. It's, your wealth isn't the problem. It's your incessant conviction that you have to have the extra 8% on your test. Yes, it's gotten you a lot of wealth, but it also means you're working so hard mm -hmm. because of your shame that you don't have space for me to love you. In fact, when he leaves, we would say, my gosh, like if I can miss the look of Jesus' love, I'll miss the look of yours. Mm -hmm. I'll miss the look of anybody else's. Your friend mm -hmm. would very easily miss your look of love when she talks with you about her story. And this is the hard thing, right? I know that if you're coming for me, there is this moment where I'm going to have to stay in the room and allow you to gaze upon me. I have to be seen. Right. I have to be willing to be seen, to take the risk of being known. I know I've experienced this in my own life. If I'm hiding some part of me, then I, even though you may know a lot about me, you don't know that part of me. And so there's always a part of me that's hiding. There's mm. always a part that's trying to stay one step ahead of what you know about me, mm. Mm. which means the shame still is a barrier, right? still isolating. It's so insidious. When you get yeah. inside this, yeah. it, it, it's no wonder that statement in Genesis 2 is so profound. They were right. naked and unashamed. Right. After that, we're, we're undoing ourselves <laughs> right. through our sin right. and through carrying of shame and our unwillingness to risk and be known. I see this affecting marriages. Mm. I don't want to be known that much. Mm. I want to be known a little bit. I see this impacting you know, people in blended family situations where they have felt the shame or the judgment of other Christians right. often within the church over this divorce and your past, and somehow I just don't feel living up to what God wants for us. And so it's that second class thing just perpetually lives on inside them. It's so, right. so much so that they don't want to go to church, or maybe I go, but I just stay over here and not really get involved, and I never volunteer, and I don't, I would never actually go to a small group where people are talking about this part of their life because then you're going to know that about me, mm -hmm. and you might turn your face mm -hmm. away from me. It's mm -hmm. so debilitating when mm -hmm. we continue to allow it to pervade our life. Where do you find the courage <laughs> to stay in the room and let yourself be seen? Um, you know, Ron, we are, uh, we are a problem-fixing culture, and so we'd like to have the uh, three steps yeah, to I'd do this. Lay it on me, man. Right, I want, <laughs> right. That's right, exactly what yeah. I want. <laughs> and it would be kind of like saying for, you know, for the people that you work with who've, who've endured trauma, um, you know, one of the, one of the simple experiences that I have for people who don't maybe know about trauma in a technical sense, what we, what we mean when we talk about it, if you had a near drowning event as a four-year-old, I had a thing that was close to that, mm. not, not, not too, but it felt like this was happening when I was about four. If you have a near-drowning event when you're four, you might easily find yourself not really wanting to go back to the pool. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. you don't. Right. And uh, the more often you choose not to go to the pool, the safer you feel. Yeah, that's right. And at some point, you just decide, I'm just not interested in going to the pool. Mm. You don't say, I'm actually terrified <laughs> to be in the pool or smell mm. chlorine. You just don't go until you get to some point in your adult life and people are having pool parties and they want you to come. Mm -hmm. And they and they're going to have the parties and they want you to be there but like it's at the pool. Well, how do we just like magically give you three steps to getting into the pool? Mm. We don't. Mm. We say come and see. Mm. I want you to come. 
when you first come, I don't even want you to bring your bathing suit because we're just going to sit on the deck of the pool mm. together. And I just want you to know that your heart rate is probably going to go up, blood pressure is going to go up, and your breathing rate is going to get more shallow. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'm going to sit right next to you. And if you hold your hand up, I'm just going to take your hand. We're going to breathe together with you in your jeans and your T-shirt and your shoes uh, sitting at the pool. And we're going to do the work of just allowing you to help, allow me to help you become calmer. Yeah. And after you do this for a week, you come and you don't need to hold my hand and you're just fine. You just sit on the deck of the pool. But then we say, great, now I want you to come next week. We're going to have you bring your swimsuit and we're going to do the same thing all over again. And when you put your swimsuit on and you just put your feet in the water, your heart rate's going to go up and your breathing's going to get shallow mm-hmm. and you're mad, I'm afraid, and we're going to do the whole thing all over again. And you keep telling yourself it's going to be okay. Well, I, here's the do thing. Do you do that? Here's, here's the thing. Um, this is why we, we talk so much about shame and about trauma and why and why shame, uh, we, we sometimes, because this question comes sometimes about, what's the difference between shame and guilt? Mm. That question comes up. I say, well, first of all, it is literally a neurodevelopmental difference. Hmm. The thing that we say, that we would just, the neurophysiology of what we would say people experience with shame, 15 to 18 months is around the time that that can begin. For the thing that we call guilt, most children aren't really entering into the capacity to experience that until they're somewhere between their ages of about four to six years of age hmm. because of what is required of the development of the prefrontal cortex for them to eventually be aware of, A, I have done something that is wrong, not I am wrong or I am bad, I've done something, but that I know that has to do with my awareness of another relationship that I have somehow kind of crossed the barrier, I've done something wrong in relationship to my mom, in relationship to my teacher, in relationship to another person. With shame, it's just me. Hmm. I just feel bad. Hmm. Yes, hmm. I can associate it with what I did to Ron, but I mean, like, it's it, mostly I'm just feeling bad. I don't think about Ron. I, like, I just feel bad, and I want to turn away from you hmm. because I can't afford to see you seeing me with shame. But the other thing that's really interesting about guilt in this research that's been done with kids and with young adults if you have an experience in which you fracture a relationship with somebody that you trust and respect, if you have a, a rupture of some kind, the evidence would suggest that when I feel the thing that we call guilt, my first maneuver is to want to move toward you to repair this. Hmm. With shame, I only turn and run, hmm. which is why when I feel shame, I have to have somebody come and get me because I'm not going to come and ask you to find me. And that is the story of the gospel. This is the gospel. This is the shepherd coming for the one. And this is Jesus on Good Friday yeah. coming fully for us. Mm-hmm. I'm not even going to let death, the shame of this, for this, he endured the cross, scorning, right, disregarding its shame, looking shame right in the eye. This is Psalm 22, right? My God, my God, mm-hmm. why hast thou forsaken me? But we forget that in a rabbinic tradition, he wouldn't have just stuck with the first verse. He would read the whole, he would quote the whole Psalm. You get to the middle of that Psalm, verse 19, and everything turns. It moves from a Psalm of despair and abandonment to a Psalm of vindication, to a Psalm of salvation. Because this is the God that we serve. This is the God that comes finds us in our shame. This is Jesus finding the woman at the well. He's finding Peter on the beach. 
He's not waiting for them to come to him. Right. Because they can't and because I can't. And when we're in community, part of the challenge is that when, you know, we ask, well, Kurt, how can people find these groups? Like, no. Like, we have to go find them. Mm-hmm. We have to say, if I'm leading a church, if I'm leading a community, I have to say, I want us to be shame hunters <laughs> because we know nowhere else do you read in the Gospels that Jesus stayed as long as he stayed in that Samaritan village. He went looking for where the shame was and beauty began to explode. serves the beginning of John 4. It says Jesus had to go through Samaria. He didn't physically have to go through Samaria. (laughs) I think you're exactly right. He went hunting for that woman. Right. Knowing this about our Lord, it's, it's so amazing. You know, if your perspective about Jesus is he wants to find that thing in you that you messed up and he is coming after you, he's going to catch you like a parent with his finger waving in your face about what you did wrong, then of course you want to run and of course you want to hide that part of you. Mm. But when your point of view is, oh no, he wants to catch you. He, mm. he, he, wants, he, may, he may even utilize your shame to get your attention so you'll listen, but he wants very much. He's not going to leave you there. That's not, he's not bringing that up just to make you feel bad. He's bringing, he's, now you're listening. And now he's saying, I'm moving towards you, even though I know this about you because you are more than this. Well, we would go, uh, yes, and I would go further and say, shame is, is many things. Like the first thing I, we, I think it's important to say, both theologically and anthropologically, that shame is not a result of what we would, of, you know, of what Augustine would call the fall or mm. original sin. Mm. Shame is a built-in part of the creation, right? It's like a signal. It's like the smoke detector going mm. off in your kitchen. There is this sense that shame emerges long before any fruit gets eaten in Genesis chapter 3. It is a signal that says something's wrong here. There is a movement afoot. Mm. There's, something's happened. When Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 7.10, there is a godly grief that leads to repentance. And there is an ungodly grief that leads to death. Folks will sometimes ask me, well, aren't we supposed to be ashamed about certain things? Because we're worried that we're not going to be ashamed enough. Mm-hmm. And like, because all this bad behavior that's going to break out is if <laughs> somehow, like, you know, we're not going to be able to do this. There are behaviors that we commit as human beings for which shame is the absolute appropriate response. Mm. It's the proper response to certain behaviors. But its purpose is not to rub our nose in our own vomit. Right. Its purpose is to get our attention. Its purpose is to signal that what's happening here is really serious. Hmm. Like, I get a small pain in my wrist, you know. Mm-hmm. might be a little arthritic. I don't know. But, I'm not, but, I, but I, don't, like, I don't think about it. I just keep going with my day, a little pain mm-hmm. in my wrist. The moment 
any moment, the moment I have the first wisp of any sense of nausea, like I'm thinking like, what's wrong? <laughs> what's wrong? It might come and go. But like I'm thinking, what's what, like, am I going to be sick? It doesn't take much nausea to get my attention that like something really wrong might be going on here. I don't mean like it's going to be cancer, but like this could ruin my day. <laughs> That's what shame does. Just the whiff of it is intended to get our attention. And the purpose then, we would say like, it's not that shame in and of itself is the problem. Mm -hmm. The problem is how we respond to it. And we have been, and this is what the Genesis account so beautifully, in a difficult way, but so beautifully portrays, is that we simply continue to move further and further and further away from each other in response to the shame that we experience. Mm -hmm. Like what would it have been like if when God comes walking in the cool of the evening, Adam, where are you? And Adam were to march right out and say, I'm here and you're not going to be happy. Mm. <laughs> I got to let you know. Of course, maybe you already do know because like you're that kind of a guy who knows things. <laughs> I know you're probably going to have to talk to her, but I was asleep at the wheel mm. and I really screwed this up. And I know you're going to have to deal with her, but just first you just need to know like it's my responsibility. I just want you to do with me what you will. Yeah. Hmm. Can you imagine God the Father turning to the other two Trinitarian members and saying, We're out of here. Can you believe this? <laughs> Forget these guys. I mean, I'm just saying, like, you can just imagine, I, I can imagine God, like, with this kind of confession, with this guy taking responsibility, with him not throwing his wife under the bus, mm. I can imagine God saying, like, Well done. Mm hmm. That's, see, that's the thing. Most of us would fear God saying, we're out of here. But, of course, which but is why we won't do this. This is why we won't do this. Right. Which is why this message is so important because we're, as you say in much of your writing, paying attention to the wrong thing rather than paying attention to the story God is trying to yeah. draft us into his spiritual eternal story. We're, yeah. we're yeah. so busy living in our own little shame mm. story mm. that we can't imagine mm. that he's in the room with us and he knows everything about us and he's still moving toward us. He, he's still saying, I've got beauty for you to right, create. Right. I uh, have recently um, begun to use this metaphor if you're standing on a sidewalk and you look up suddenly to see yourself being approached by an empty, small, red radio flyer wagon in what universe this kind of a thing would happen, I don't know. But if you were to suddenly find yourself being approached by a wagon, at three miles an hour, you would simply put your foot out and stop it. Mm -hmm. If you're standing on the railroad tracks hmm. and you discover that you're being approached by a locomotive at three miles an hour, there's not a thing you're going to do. It's velocity. Mm -hmm. It's its mass. Mm -hmm. Shame is like the locomotive. It's not its speed. It's the mass effect that we have that we've collected, not just in my own personal life, but my generational life and the life that I have as a human being. And what I need is another train. Yeah. And this is what community is all about. You, you're a big advocate for healing communities. I, I want to come back to that. I, in the work that we do with blended families in particular, I've just seen that being 
so liberating for people. So many step-family couples out there have never sat down and had a conversation with another step-family couple. And when they do, they discover, oh, wow, it's not just us. Oh, right. oh, oh that's something you experience as well, and I'm not the only one. And I, I'm not the only step-parent who is unsure of how they feel about their stepchildren. You know, all those little shame things that build up with. But this is true for anybody within the Christian community. That's right. When we constantly hide our story and who we are, then we don't have any opportunity for somebody to physically continue to move toward us, to see us for what we are. It, it, say more about that. Well, I, th I think, again, this is built into the fabric of basic, when I say basic, I mean um, primal, our primal understanding of what it means to be a human being. When mm -hmm. we read in the early text, it's not good for man to be alone. Mm -hmm. This is not just a kind of throwaway comment. Yeah. This is fundamental to what it means to be human. Mm -hmm. And there's a comment, God's like, you know, the writer is like letting us say, it's the God saying it's not good for them to be alone. Let's go, we're, we're gonna create companionship. And, and, and we don't have time for this today, but like, even if we look at like how that then gets done, right? Why, you know, he, there's plenty of mud to go around. Why doesn't he just like, mm -hmm. like, like make lots of mounds of mud and put people out in the millions all at once? Why do we do it so slowly? And why do we do it very intimately? So it's not good for us to be alone, but it is the thing that we are more terrified of than anything that mm -hmm. we are going to be left. Shame is ultimately a signal that you're going to be, you're going to be abandoned. And you're going to be left um, because we can't. We have no interest in staying in the room with you. Atonement, at one meant, is God's answer to this. Hmm. The Christian community, the body of Christ, the temple. Right. This is Psalm 27. One thing have I asked that I can dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, which was at the time the tabernacle, which moved to the temple which moved in John 2 to Jesus saying, destroy this temple in three days, I'll make it again. Mm -hmm. It's him, yeah. which moves into Pentecost, which is the people of Jesus, which moves then to 1 Corinthians 12, when Paul writes about the body of Christ, that we are the temple of the living God. Mm -hmm. Then we get to Revelation 3, where if you persevere, if you conquer, I will make you a pillar mm. in the house of my God. Jesus sees the woman at the well, where she only sees brokenness. And Jesus sees your friend, the worship leader, and he sees a pillar in the house of his God. And the thing is, none of us recognize that we are pillars by ourselves. That's right. I have to have you see it in mm -hmm. me. Because this is the way we are made. I don't ever primarily see myself. I see myself as a reflection of me seeing you see me. Mm. This is how the brain works. This is attachment research. Like I come into the world looking for someone looking for me. And these blended families, like they've and right like and, and of course, like the fracture lines around yeah. family and marriage. Like, yeah. notice, in Malachi, God does not say God hates people who are divorced. Right. 
Right. God hates divorce because God knows the rending. Mm -hmm. God knows where the shame will just pour in and fill the cracks. Mm -hmm. And God says, I'm coming for you. And in the same way that Jesus was accused because he would spend time with tax collectors and harlots, today he would come for blended families. Yeah. And he would say, I'm going to your house because I have some artistic work that I want to do. You might not know this, but I'm a pretty good craftsman, mm -hmm. he would say. Mm -hmm. And I want apprentices in my shop. And I can't imagine anybody that I would want in my shop more than I would want you. And of course, your friend would say, well, because of my worship. And he's like, no. That I already know that you're good at. That you don't need training with. But the part of you that doesn't believe that I'm going to stay in the room, I'm coming for her. Hmm. That's who I'm coming for. That's the part of you that will be the source. You're, it's not just a signal. Your shame is not just a signal. It is a source the beauty that is about to emerge. This is what I do because you are my craftsmanship. I'm coming for you. You know, just a few weeks ago, we celebrated the coming of the Messiah to the world. It's as if he was saying to all of us, I'm coming for you. You are valuable to me. You are worthy of my love and I want to take you back. I'm coming for you. You've been listening to my conversation with Dr. Kurt Thompson. I'm Ron Deal and this is Family Life Blended. I'm wondering what you're feeling right now. As you listen to this conversation, what has risen up inside you? Is it, nah, he's not coming for me. I'm not worthy enough. Or maybe you're feeling some relief. Could it be that I don't have to be good enough? That grace really is sufficient? And that even though I can't change my story in my past, I can change the story I tell about my story in my past? Let me invite you to rest in that truth, because that is true. That's the good news that Jesus brings to you and I. Let's rest in it. Let's rest in that reality. You can't earn your forgiveness or your salvation, and you don't have to. So rather, in gratitude, repent of any wrongdoing from the past, but mostly just be assured that your story has been changed forever, and release your shame. If you'd like more information about my guest, you'll find it in our show notes. If you want to learn more about Family Life Blended, you can visit us at familylife.com blended. We have the world's largest collection of articles, videos, resources, online courses, and books for blended families, like my book and DVD series, The Smart Step Family, and many, many others. Check us out. The show notes will tell you how. 
We'd love for you to subscribe if you haven't already on the new Famer Life app. You can listen or you can go to Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, wherever you get your podcast and subscribe. And that way you won't miss any episodes in the future. And be sure to leave us a quick review or rating so others can find help and support as well. And if you don't mind, share this podcast with a friend. We cover blended families from top to bottom, so there's bound to be someone in your life who could use a little encouragement. Hey, each spring we put on a worldwide enrichment event for blended family couples. It's a one-day live stream event that you can attend from anywhere in the world. Let's get this on your calendar, all right? The all-new Blended and Blessed live stream event will take place live in Houston, Texas on Saturday, April 2nd. 2022. If you live within driving distance of Houston, you can join us for the live event, or you can just view it online on your smartphone or your laptop computer from anywhere in the world. And here's the cool part. Churches can host the event and bring blended family couples together. Even if just virtually bringing together or bringing them together in person, it helps to build your ministry. It helps to build families in your local community. So go to blendedandblessed.com to learn all about it. That's blendedandblessed.com. Next time, you're going to hear from Cheryl Shoemake about waiting to be loved and accepted in a blended family. He used that time to transform my heart, to draw me closer to himself, to refocus my attention, and that my hopeful expectation was no longer fixed on fulfillment. It was fixed on him. That's author Cheryl Shoemake next time on Family Life Blended. I'm Ron Deal. Thanks for listening. And thanks to our monthly donors who make this podcast possible. If you'd like to help or donate just to say thank you for what the podcast offers you, look in the show notes for a link. Believe me, every dollar makes a big difference, and we appreciate it. Our producer is Marcus Holt, mastering engineer Dennis Leak, project coordinator Ann and Caro, and theme music composed and performed by Braden Deal. Family Life Blended is part of the Family Life Podcast Network, helping you pursue the relationships that matter most.